Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Most films about Jesus cast an attractive actor for the part, partly because they need to sell tickets and an attractive lead never hurts. The real Jesus is more substance than style. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the series Advent with this sermon entitled Christ, the Suffering Savior of Sinners, which covers Isaiah chapter 52 verse 13 to chapter 53 verse 12. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Let me pray for us and then we'll finish up our Advent series uh, this morning as we continue to look at the servant songs of Isaiah. Let me pray. Father, would you come, Holy Spirit, and fill us, empower us, give us uh, the ability to hear from you this morning. Lord, speak to our hearts, clear our minds. Lord, give us, give us more of you. We pray that as we open your word, would you bless it? We thank you that your word promises. You, you say in your scriptures that your word will not return void. And you also say that it is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing between both joint and marrow. And so would you pierce our hearts with it this morning? Remind us of the great truth of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So, so far in the series, we've been uh, for three weeks now, fourth week today, of looking at what we call, what theologians call, the servant songs that come to us out of the, the book of Isaiah, which, as we've said, was written about 700 years before Jesus came, before he came lying in that manger, born on that starry night. 700 years previous, the prophet Isaiah made these uh, predictions, if you will, telling us what it would be like when the Messiah would come, when the Savior would come. And he, he keeps talking about in these songs, these poems, that this Messiah, the one to come, is going to be a servant, which is not at all what we would expect, at least not what the people of God in that day would have expected. And so these songs are found in Isaiah chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then as we'll see this morning in chapters 52 and 53. And in those three that we've looked at so far, we've seen that Christ is the sustainer of the weary, that he's a light to the nations, that he's the tender physician. And this morning, we're going to see that he is the suffering servant who saves sinners. Just a simple but profound message, the heart of the message of Christianity. One in which that if you've been in or around church for any length of time, you probably go, okay, this is one that I can probably sleep through or tune out because I've heard this so many times. Let me beg of you to not do that because this is the essence of what we believe. And the moment we begin to move away from this in the sense of not remembering it daily, not continuing to center our hearts on what Christ has done, that's the moment that we uh, tread into waters that become dangerous for our souls. And so, to lead us where we've been in this series and to where we're going this morning, I want you to take a look at this video. This is from Kurt Cloninger. Many of you know Kurt. Kurt's an actor in our congregation for many, many years. He's a part of this group that does these videos and skits and whatnot to give us a picture 
of what it might have looked like when Isaiah was hearing from the Lord. Take a look at this. So, this is what you want me to tell them. The people, your people who have lived in dark exile all these many years with their, their backs up against some Babylonian wall. It was one thing when you had me tell the king that a, a virgin would give birth. Go back to sleep, my dear. I'm talking to God. Is he listening? Uh, what do you mean, is he listening? Well, are you listening to him? You see what I mean, Lord? Even my own wife questions me. Now, you are God Almighty. You do what you want to do. But you want me to tell the people that Messiah is going to be just uh, some plain fellow like one of us? Uh, that he's going to suffer? He's going to die? Why not Moses to lead us out of exile? Or, uh, or King David, the mighty warrior, not some tiny li little... Uh, where is the oil for the lamp? It's where it always is. Uh, ah! This is what I'm talking about, Lord. We are a people in darkness, stumbling around, stubbing our toe on the sin of the world. Uh, we need... A mighty rescuer. We need, uh, we need a savior, not some tiny little. Huh. Such a tiny flame. And the whole room is filled with light. I am a man of unclean lips. Forgive me, Lord. I will tell them what you have shown me, even if I don't understand it. I will trust you, good Lord, in your own good time to, to bring us uh, Emmanuel, to bring us light and hope. Yeah. Light and hope. I'm coming back to bed. catch it. One of the things that Kurt there portraying Isaiah said that 
I think is absolutely probably what Isaiah was thinking. Do you expect me to tell the people that Messiah is gonna be just an ordinary fellow like us? That he's going to suffer and that he's going to die. The original readers, of course, this is artistic liberty to give a picture of what it might have looked like with Isaiah all those centuries ago. But here's what we can know from what Isaiah has written. We can assume safely that the the readers of this prophecy, the original readers of this prophecy, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, would have been shocked by what they read. And if not shocked, at the very least, very confused. Because as, as we have established often, as we have taught on the Old Testament here, It's worth going back to time and again to remember that what the people of God expected was very different from what God gave. Because what the people of God wanted, what the Israelites wanted is they wanted a savior, even as you heard in the video there, who was gonna be a mighty warrior, a deliverer, not unlike King David or Moses even. They wanted a savior They wanted a rescuer who was going to be like David, a new David, a better David in the sense of that he was going to be handsome. You remember David in the scriptures was described as a young man who was very attractive, that people wanted to be around, that men came around and he had his his strong and mighty men with him and everyone wanted to be like David and, and he put on armor. And he was a warrior on the battlefield. He went out into the battle to deliver Israel from their enemies. And so they're waiting on another David. But what they got instead, what was prophesied and told about the Messiah here, is that you're not going to get one who is handsome and attractive and bringing people all around in that sense. Nor are you going to get one that's going to put on armor, but you're going to get one who is going to put on flesh. Not one who's going to go to the battlefield here that's right in front of us, but a very different battlefield. One that we don't often realize is waging all around us all the time. Isaiah keeps talking about this servant, this one who would come And in today's text, the explicit nature in which he describes what he will do when he comes would have been nothing less than shocking. So let's read it. Isaiah 52, starting at the end of 52 in verse 13, says this. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted Let me pause real quick here and just say this. Remember, you might remember back to the first week of this series where I set up three different things on the stage here to kind of orient us to the reality that every prophecy about the Messiah, about the Savior, about the Christ is fulfilled in Jesus. Some of those prophecies are fulfilled fully and completely in the first coming of Christ. Others of those prophecies are fulfilled in part by his first coming and in full at his second coming. 
So in a lot of these prophecies that you'll see in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, you'll see this intertwining between prophecies that are fully fulfilled in the first coming of Christ and those in which are fulfilled in part but not in full yet. And so here we'll see that my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. That's, a, that's pointing to the fact that that's partly true now for sure as he reigns on high, ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But it's pointing us to the fullness of that reality when he comes again. That at the, at the end of it all, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so there's this, you kind of have to have an eye to begin to develop, okay, there's prophecy here about the one to come, and this was fully fulfilled in his first coming. This is fully fulfilled in his second. But look at verse 14. Now we're back at the first coming. We're back at what happened, or what will happen as Isaiah's writing when he comes. It says, as many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of, of the children of mankind, or your translation may say, beyond that of human likeness. This is, this is uh, an explicit, clear reference to the cross and even what would happen to Jesus leading up to the cross the torture that he would endure, the ways in which he would be whipped and beaten to, uh, to death almost, even before he was hung on the cross, that there would be such atrocity in the way in which he was tortured, in the suffering in which he had endured, that you could say it was as if that he was marred beyond even that of human likeness. Verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The reign and the dominion of Jesus. Verse 53, verse 1. Who has believed what, we, uh, what they have heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. And if you're at this point already in this servant song, if you're, a, uh, if you're an Israelite of Isaiah's day, you're going, what? This is the one to come? Marred beyond human recognition? There is nothing about him, no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I can't read that without thinking about, just in my mind I laugh because uh, there's, when, when Rachel and I first met, uh, we were freshmen in, in college and my sister was actually three years older than me and she was uh, at that time uh, the, the new member trainer for uh, the sorority that, that Rachel was in. They were in the same sorority, my sister was a senior, Rachel was a freshman. So naturally, as a proud sister, she wants to brag on her freshman young, younger brother and tell all these uh, young ladies that are in my class what a great and handsome and awesome younger brother she has. And so she had told all these girls about how awesome I am. Set me up for failure, right? So Rachel and I meet, we, we go out on a date, we start dating, but nothing really happened initially. It took a while before we started dating. 
Once we had been dating for a while, somewhere, I don't remember how exactly how it went down, but in the midst of a conversation one night, I asked her, I said, what was your first impression of me? And she said, your sister had really built you up. And my first thought was, what was the big deal? (laughs) That'll hurt your ego. And so, please don't hear me saying, so I'm like Jesus. There's nothing about me. And I'm just saying that he, he became one of us, very unassuming, nothing about him that the world would look at in former majesty that we should say, yes, I desire him. In other words, God sent the Savior. He sent the servant. He sent the Messiah to come as one who is so unassuming, just like me and you, in a manger, in filth, in poverty, working class job, carpenter, no royal robes, no palace, no opulence, nothing that would cause us to look at him and desire him. Then verse three of chapter 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. This verse is full of words that in the English language we have a bit of a struggle interpreting because they're so full of meaning. They're so rich in what's being said here, and we do our best with the words that we have, but it helps sometimes to give more words to it. So when you see despised, you can also think disdained. You can think held in contempt. When you see rejected, you can also think forsaken, that he was forsaken by men. When you see a man of sorrows, that word sorrows there means pain. And it's getting at both, it's the full experience, the full human experience of pain. So it's not just physical pain. It's also emotional pain. It's also mental pain. It's every aspect of being human, the pain that comes with that, the servant experienced in full. When you see acquainted, that he was acquainted with grief, that word acquainted is the same word in the Old Testament in the Hebrew language that's used for know. And that word know is the same word that's used when you would say in the Old Testament, you might read in your translations that something like Abraham knew Sarah. That's an intimate term. Sexually speaking, it's, it's this intimate knowing by experience, knowing something deeply. So to say he's acquainted with grief, it means that he knows by experience the intimate nature of grief. And that word grief is most often translated in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, as sickness. A man acquainted with sickness, with calamity, with pain, with sorrow. In other words, this servant who is to come would put on flesh in such a way that he in every way that we are would experience what it means to be human. And then it says this, surely, Verse four, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. 
but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I want to read this again, that one part again. I want to read again, and I want you, I want you to listen to the dichotomy, the comparison between what is true of him and what's true of us, what gets put on him that is, should be ours. Listen to this language again. Surely he has borne our griefs, our pain. Our sadness, our sickness, our calamity, he has borne them for us. And he's carried our sorrows. Verse five, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way. And he, the Lord, has, made, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There has been debate among uh, scholars, mainly Jewish scholars over the years, that say, well, this isn't really talking about Jesus. This isn't really talking about the Messiah. This is talking about Jeremiah, the, the prophet who wept. This is talking about the nation of Israel. This is talking about all kinds of other things. But let me show you just briefly in one little text that the Apostle Peter was convinced otherwise. Thinking about this text right here that we just read, those three verses that we just read, this is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. The sheep, the ones who are wayward, the ones who can't get it right, the ones who continually get into the muck and the mire, the, the ones who are stuck in the quicksand of our sin, the sheep, the very ones who deserve the calamity that is due them, the shepherd shows up and takes upon him, upon himself, the iniquity of us all. Verse seven, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We talked about this some last week, that Jesus brought his kingdom in quietness, and here we have it again. This is referring to when Jesus is on trial before Pilate. And Pilate is saying to him, are you the king? Uh, say something. And Jesus says nothing. He's silent like a lamb before the ones who are about to slaughter him. He could have defended himself. He could have said, I am the Lord. I am the one. I am the I am. He even did say that. The one thing he did say, and everyone fell down. But he was silent. He didn't defend himself. Even on the cross, they're mocking him and they're saying, if you really are the king, then take yourself down from there. And he, and he says nothing 
Except when he does speak, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as, for, and, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Have you ever wondered what, that, what Isaiah, what God is saying to Isaiah? Who's considered the fact that he was cut off, that, that he came from heaven on high? He came from the... Uh, from the right hand of God the Father, the Son of God himself, divine, God in the flesh. But then Philippians 2, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he humbled himself and he came in the likeness of a servant, in the likeness of mankind, to be obedient to death, even death on a cross. That so that when he's hanging on this cross, he's cut off from the land of the living because God himself, the Father, who had always been in perfect communion with the Son from eternity past, in that very moment, turns his face from the Son and forsakes him. And he's cut off from the land of the living. Why? For the oppression of his people. That's why. And they made his grave with the wicked. And with a rich man in his death, the, the tomb of Lazarus. Although he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, the only one who ever walked the face of the earth that didn't deserve punishment and wrath is the one who got it in full. But look at verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord, God Almighty Yahweh, to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You read verse 10 and you go, man, is, is God the Father, is he just this, this bloodthirsty God that would say it was the will of the Lord to crush his very own son? What kind of God is this? The answer is that this is a God who so loves you and me that he would withhold the just wrath of a, justice, of a just God. He would withhold it from you and me, the very ones who deserve it because of our sin and pour it out on his son. The only perfect sacrifice, the only perfect lamb. Why? Verse 11, here's why. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Why will he see and be satisfied? Here's why. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Why would it be the will of the Lord to crush him so that you and I, the unrighteous, through the sacrifice of the only one who is righteous, will be declared and considered righteous? What's righteous? It means justified. What does that mean? It means that we will be seen as right before God, as just before God, as acceptable before God, as though we are and have the righteousness of Christ himself, that the righteousness of the servant would be placed upon us as, is, as if it were our own.
Therefore, verse 12, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of the many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you, you know, in the New Testament, it tells us that very thing. That Christ is now seated at the right hand of the Father after his death and his resurrection and his ascension. He reigns on high at the right hand of the Father. And one of the things that it says that he's doing is that he's interceding. He's praying for the transgressors for us, for his children. This was written 700 years before Jesus came. It's as if someone watched Jesus' life, watched his brutal crucifixion, and then wrote down what happened at the time it happened. That's how accurate this prophecy is, that the one who would come, the servant who would come, would be the very one who would undo, who would destroy the works of the devil. That's why he came. That's the gospel, that's the good news. First John chapter three, verse eight says that. It says, for the son of man came to destroy the works of the devil. What, what, what is the huge hold on us that the devil has over us is that through sin that all of us are born into, death is our greatest enemy. Not just physical death that was ushered in because of sin, but more importantly, most importantly, eternal death that was uh, ushered in by sin. And that's not, a, that's not a annihilation. That's not a, that we don't exist anymore. That's a, that's a permanent, eternal reality separated from God in hell. We don't talk about that enough. A lot of us got burned out in the 1950s and 60s and 70s with hellfire and brimstone preaching. And so we want to be careful these days and pull away a little bit and say, well, you know, we're not going to talk about hell because that really offends people. Well, the scriptures talk about it. The scriptures say that if you don't know Jesus, that if you haven't trusted in the servant, the Messiah, the suffering savior of sinners, the only one who came to deal with the very issue that we need rescuing from more than anything else, which is sin itself, if you don't believe upon him by faith in his sacrifice, then the eternal reality for those that don't believe is hell. That's not my opinion. That's not my, my hunch. That's what the scriptures teach. And so we have to believe and understand that the servant, the suffering servant is the only one who came to save sinners and his name is Jesus. And when we talk about Christmas and we say, oh, it's a beautiful starry night that he was born, just remember, yes, that's cool, but he came to do this. He came to die. He came to rescue and ransom sinners back unto himself, the one in whom the enemy is seeking to destroy, yet he's the only one who destroys the enemy. That's the gospel. And so Christmas is awesome, not just because he came, but because of what he came to do. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. There's great hope in a world of suffering when you are united to the one who suffered for you. I gotta read this to you. Ah, oh, I left it. Randy, can you hand me my phone right there? Thank you. 
I gotta read this to you real quick and then we're gonna take the table. Many of you have heard me uh, talking about our dear friends in Birmingham who um, have walked through what I would say is something that would be considered, in my opinion, the, perhaps the worst thing you could ever walk through on this side of heaven in this life. Seven years ago, they gave birth to twins. About a year and a half into their lives, they discovered, began to notice something was terribly wrong. They weren't developing. Things weren't happening as the way they should when you see little children developing. And long story short, these two little precious girls had uh, an extremely rare genetic disease. I've, I've shared their story before in here. Uh, their first daughter went to be with Jesus last summer. Their second daughter just went to be with Jesus three days ago. They've buried two precious little girls. The father, a good friend of mine, he says this. He sent me his, I, I just texted him a few mornings back and just said, hey man, I, I keep praying for you. I love you. And he just sent me a screenshot of his, of his journal entry that morning. This was on December 7th. He's a doctor. Uh, he's a pediatrician. He does surgeries. So this is the language he's using. This is his world. He says, he's talking to God, and he says, when you withhold the anesthetic during our open heart surgeries, it is not without reason. You look at the nurses, you stare them directly in the face, and you say, for this case, for this one, we, do, we don't need it. And so what do we do? We cry out at the incision. The pain waffles the mind. We scramble for our usual pain relief, distracted, distraction for, with entertainment, exercise, alcohol, sex, whatever it may be. But then we finally cry out for our own death, thrashing about. You gracious, graciously show us that we realize that we are still held in your bleeding hands. Your hands are still, and I finally rest. Jesus, the only anesthetic I need is your presence. We're going to take the table this morning. What these elements represent is the suffering servant who came to save sinners. And we partake in remembrance and we partake believing that something mysteriously beautiful is going on here, that the Spirit of God is at work as believers in Jesus take of this bread and of this juice. And we don't believe that it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus, but we do believe that the Spirit is nourishing us in a way when we take these elements. And one of the things that's happening is this. First and foremost, this is reminding us of the fact that the servant came to redeem me, to save me, to set me free from the tyranny of sin and death, to give me his presence, to unite me to himself, and to give me eternal life. The other thing this element, these elements are doing is this. They're ushering us into the reality that when Jesus came, he said this, if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross daily and follow me, meaning he's calling us to die and to suffer with him. That's not a message you're gonna read about on the best-selling list. 
but to suffer with them. How can you say what my friend said here is only because he is intimately in deep relationship, united with the one who suffered for him to where he can say in the worst, in the worst In the worst of circumstances, you, my suffering servant, you sustain me. Your presence is all I need. May I eat of you and be satisfied. That's the table. And so that's why we take. Because Jesus said, I am the bread of life. If you eat of me, you will never be hungry again. Father, would you bless this time now as we, as we entered in, into this sacrament, this holy sacrament of the Lord's table. Would you bless this time? Would you make it rich and full as we dine on you spiritually, Jesus? And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.